Hello, my name's Eric. And I'm Rissa. And this is Film Chatter. Welcome to Film Chatter. And to our new listeners, we bring you the classics, hidden gems, cult, contemporary, and more every two weeks. So Marissa, tell us what we're going to be talking about today. Today we will be talking about unique adaptations. Eric, can you lead us on into what what we're talking about when we talk about unique adaptations? Yeah, so when we were looking for films, we made sure that these adaptations were unique in the way that they adapted their original source. So we don't want anything that's like a typical literary adaptation with those foreseeable franchises that are just inevitable, like Harry Potter or the Hunger Games. I think what we were really looking for with this were films that kind of pushed the boundaries of adaptation, did something that was really new or unique, and looking for adaptations of other sources from books, such as music, poetry, or even adaptations of an adaptation in one of my examples (laughs) here today. And we also tried to find films that were doing something creative with their adaptation. So not necessarily like a shot for shot from the page to the screen type of adaptation, but more like a real literal translation of the source's themes into the film. When people think of adaptation, I think the most common thing that comes up with adaptations is, oh, well, was it faithful to the source? Mostly they're talking about a book. Uh, I think when when people talk about like adaptations, they mostly think of books, but it goes beyond many, many things. I have some today that is literally derived from some poems mostly, but also from like a autobiography. But yeah, the whole thing like, oh, is it faithful? I don't know, Eric, like what's your, what's your take on that? Well, what's important to understand is that books are books and films are films. And mm-hmm. Each one has its own way of communicating ideas. So there's a lot of contention when it goes from bringing a book and the way that it translates that idea and then trying to translate that into film. There's some things that have to be given leeway because it's not going to be able to be as accurate as it is on the page with words as it will be on the screen with visuals, you know? Yeah. Um, that's why the the shot for shot ones are very easy to call that out on because literally when it's a shot for shot remake of a book, like you can call it out and be like, well, they missed this specific paragraph in this book when it's so closely related to the screen translation. So for me, I prefer if it's just overall its own creative thing set from the book, but separate at the same time. Yeah, I think when we talk about adaptation, what we really should be Um, shying away from is not that was it faithful that's not really a good take on an adaptation it's more like oh was it a direct adaptation was it indirectly an adaptation and me personally this is a personal opinion of mine I find that the ones that tend to go in an indirectly like it's it's already going creatively a different direction the director has saw it in um in a different form Those to me have always been more creatively exciting. I don't know. What about you? What do you think, Eric? Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100% there. (laughs) I heard, I I read something very true to adaptations um, a couple years ago that I, I still carry with me. And that's that the film wants to flash a crude spotlight on Mm -hmm. areas that 
have potential in a visual format. So mm-hmm. that being said, if it doesn't carry the whole entire essence of the book, that's okay because the translation here coming from a different mind is going to be its own unique thing. And many times I've, I think when it does that is, is more surprising, it's more illuminating, or it adds something to the original source material that just wasn't there before. In connection to like franchises, like, um, you know, you mentioned like Harry Potter and then there's like Lord of the Rings and, you know, people talk about like faithful or let's just say a direct uh adaptation of those there's nothing wrong with that because that's why we shied away today from franchises like the harry potter and lord of the rings is because the fans who have read those books kind of expect uh, a direct like adaptation they, they really do and it, it, to shy away from that would be truly upsetting to the fans so like in the case of like harry potter i know that they had like uh, jk rowling like as uh, an advisor on the film, like to see like how directly it was closely related to to her source material. Shine away from more like uh, not the franchises, but just other pieces of work uh, where I have um, a film I'll be talking about today that was adapted from a short story. And I did uh, read some of the short story and it was just very interesting to see how the director has taken their vision in a very creative different way but also not not shying away too much from the original source as well one thing i did want to mention um on the topic of popular adaptations right we have to talk about the most popular one in hollywood right now which is superhero films and those are direct almost direct from page to screen adaptations as well there are ways in which they use film specific elements to tell those stories but how much ask yourself how much liberty can you get from a comic book into a screen type of translation? You know, how much liberties Mm -hmm. can you take? And I think that's an interesting thing to sort of keep in mind here when talking about different types of adaptation. So whereas these page to screen adaptations are sort of limited, see how these ones here that we bring today are sort of more expanded in their choices of what they decide to take and reproduce from the original source. A film that came to mind, this is not on the superhero level, like uh, this is just uh, a film that I saw and then I read the book afterwards and I was seeing how much was still kept directly from the source. So this is um, the film I'm talking about is Annihilation Hmm. uh, by Alex Garland. And I, (laughs) yeah, love the movie, love, love, love the movie. And I was like, oh man, like, well, Alex Alex Garland already, I think is is like a visionary already. And it's one of my favorite uh, contemporary directors as of today. But reading the book Annihilation and seeing actually that like he changed certain things. Like I believe in the book there was like there was less women, I want to say, or more women. But um, so just, you know, certain things like that, um, certain certain uh, roles that they had in the book compared to the movie. So it's always interesting seeing those little changes, like how much of an effect it makes, like when you actually see the film. And and there's always the whole thing of like if you read the book before the movie, like that might skew your whole movie watching experience. I'm a little on the odd side where like, actually I watched movie, I watched the movies first and then I'll read the book after. Mm. I feel like that, that kind of like, doesn't make me so let down. Whereas a lot of people, I feel like if they have read the book and then watched the movie after, they're probably most likely like kind of let down. It's just, it's just kind of what we do, I think. I actually come away because I do the same thing mostly. Uh, I did mm-hmm. that with the Age of Innocence and comparing uh, mm-hmm. Edith Wharton's novel to Martin Scorsese's uh, adaptation of it. 
And I found myself just leaning more towards the film. It's always fun to spot that out. Like, okay, what were the changes being made? And uh, does it work? You know, does it not work or whatever? But it's always exciting. Um, I do know that adaptations, I think, I think possibly um, make up, I think, 70%, if not more of the films being made as of today. I mean, like, just look at the look at the superhero comic book um, movies as of today like super popular all adaptations if you think about it yeah I would say it, it is rarer to have um, more like original uh, creative works wouldn't you say Eric it's more like adaptations are they pretty much re- like reign supreme in Hollywood I think that's because when you're looking at it financially if you have something that's already has that already has a fan base it's already successful you know you're going to bring in audiences to the seats then that is that's a good investment. Whereas this original project that nobody's ever you know heard of or nobody's you got no clue what it's about um, with probably a first time or or little known director that's that's bad that's bad business for them. So if you can mm-hmm. guarantee an audience, I think that's always preferable for the studios. And so you have this this connection with adaptations there that why they're so popular. One of the reasons why I'm not going to say it's the only reason, but definitely one of the reasons why they're so popular is they they drive audiences. Yeah, well, we know with Hollywood, it comes down to financial risk. And (laughs) so it's like to to take a to take a financial risk on a an entirely original idea uh, I would say is rarer and rarer these days because um, what what would sell, what would people know is like, okay, these superhero movies, extremely popular, very financially successful. So yeah, it, it does come, come down to money. All right, Marissa, you want to get started with your first film today? All righty, guys. So my first pick of today is In the Bedroom, made in 2001, directed by Todd Field. There are things of which I may not speak. There are dreams that cannot die. There are thoughts that make the strong heart weak, bring a pallor into the cheek, and a mist before the eye. I was just thinking. About what? About you. Where are they, with him? That's none of your business. They're my boys, but they're none of my business. Oh my God, what happened? Come on, tell me you hit him. You take my house. Can you take my kids? Ah! Go upstairs! Stay here! No! You can't admit the truth to me or to yourself. You encouraged him. Are you saying that I'm the one responsible? I know what you think, that I let him get away with everything! Just to give it a synopsis, in an idyllic New England town, the Fowler family's only son, Frank, comes home from his freshman year at college with a much older girlfriend, a soon-to-be divorced mother with an unwanted husband. Soon, an unthinkable tragedy shakes the community to its very core. Ooh, so there, so immediately this stands out. Is it an age difference there? Is there a big age difference? Yeah, that that does that does play into the whole film, especially with the parents. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, no, this, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just, since we're talking about adaptations here, um, I just want to say that the story uh, was written by Todd Field and Robert Festinger, um, but it was based on the short story Killings by Andre Dubus. Uh, written in 1979, the short story entails how a man seeks revenge after the murder of his son. So um, if that didn't give you a clue, like that was a big, <laughs> I mean, that's a big, that's literally, if you look up what Killings is about, that's literally what it says. So from here on out, uh, if you haven't seen this movie and maybe don't really want to hear too much about it, because I will pretty much say like spoilers about this movie, I, I cannot not talk about the spoilers so beware guys if you're really interested in watching this like um maybe watch it first and then come back to us talking about it but yeah I will go into um spoiler territory so I remember Eric you asked me about the title right in the bedroom yeah I thought it was about <laughs> being inside a bedroom in some way but it turns out nothing to do with that that's not far off but if we really think about it there is a line that is said by um by tom wilkinson in the in the film and so he pretty much states the title refers to the rear compartment of a lobster trap known as quote the bedroom and how it can only hold two lobsters before the lobsters begin to turn on each other this is so crucial to the story by the way and i love love how it's interwoven into the title so the trap has nylon nets called heads Two side, side heads to let the lobster crawl in. And inside, they call a bedroom head. Hold the bait and keeps them from escaping. You know the old saying, uh, two is company, three's a crowd? You know, it's like that. You uh, get more than two of these in the bedroom, and chances are something like that's going to happen. That's why Frank can't leave these traps for more than a day. I think I just made a connection of where this is going. That's great. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so um, yes, and that first hour, holy shit, guys. Okay, so at at first, in this first hour, actually, I wasn't sure whether I liked it or not, to be honest. Like, but when that moment happened, you're hooked, and there's no letting go. Like, you think it's like just like a standard. Oh, this is just a standard like suburban drama, but no, 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 no. So some outstanding cast here. Um, so there's Sissy Spacek as Ruth Fowler. We have Tom Wilkinson as Matt Fowler, Marissa Tomei, my girl, um, as Natalie, uh, Nick Stahl as Frank Fowler. I love Nick Stahl, by the way. Um, and William Mapather as Natalie's ex-husband. And fun fact, this is Tom Cruise's cousin. Hmm. <laughs> that was a little, that was a little tidbit I had to throw in there. I thought that was like kind of interesting. I didn't even know that Tom Cruise, um, his last name is actually Mapather. So they're that's, that's I had why. a feeling it was not Cruz. <laughs> that's such a <laughs> that's too badass to be real, you know. <laughs> I know. I was just like, okay, we're gonna throw in that little fun fact there. Um, too good, too good. <laughs> so this film actually uh, has a lot of Oscar nominations from the seventy fourth Academy Awards. Spacek was nominated for Best Actress. Wilkinson was nominated for Best Actor. Tomei was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Some other nominations got uh, Best Picture and best adapted screenplay. And you will see what guys, right off the bat, the first standout scene, it happens within the first hour. That's why I'm saying like within the first hour, up until that moment, I was just like, okay, this is just a standard suburban drama here. Like, and then when the sun gets shot, this scene is so immensely shocking. Like as a viewer, you're, you're, you're forced to take it all in. 
all the pain, all the sadness, anger, rage, confusion, all of it. And something that Field does, which I find this interesting because I think most movies, if you have a murder, would kind of shy away from it, maybe like it, maybe it's implied or you could hear it off to the side or, or whatever, or it's overly, it's overly graphic. This is very real. This is just a freak accident in a way between Natalie's ex-husband who comes over. It's a total misunderstanding, if anything. I mean, that's where problems usually lie, right? Over misunderstandings. And basically, uh, Frank is at Natalie's place and uh, the ex-husband cannot let Natalie go. You know, even if like Natalie and ex-husband, you know, they've already clearly, they've already separated at this point, but he goes over to the house and he just thinks like, okay, Frank is like fucking my wife kind of thing. And yeah, he comes over with a gun. He tries to come in the entrance and Frank is like, you know, go away, man. And they're like trying to, you know, and you could see it escalating, but you really like, I think as, as a viewer, you're like, really like, is it going to go there? Is it not going to go there? Like you, it's teetering, it's teetering. And that's what makes it so suspenseful. So in that moment where Natalie goes upstairs to check on her children, to see if they're okay, you know, like pretty much like, cause she hear she hears the fighting going on downstairs and when she's going downstairs and this is on natalie the, the camera's on natalie you just hear the gunshot oh and then immediately it goes to the next scene where natalie goes into the room and it's on her face and she just screams bloody murder and then the camera pans to frank on the floor and his head is like just bloodied like he's dead that has to have some hereditary like like hereditary <laughs> that's that's very connected there because the same yeah. level of shock you know and if you haven't seen hereditary spoiler alert on Tony Colette's <laughs> yeah. face yeah major spoiler but yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. I mean I, maybe imagine that maybe Ari Aster looks up to Todd Field a lot you know I think a lot of these contemporary directors as of today have a lot to thank Todd Field for mm. hands down um wow. yeah, yeah oh yeah and like I'm saying, the camera does not shy away. You, It just has the camera right on Frank on the floor. Just like his head is just blown out practically. Ugh. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's intense. But like, I was like, once that moment happened, I was, I was hooked. Cause I was just like, how is it going to go from there? And that was just within the first hour. And this movie, I believe is, um, I think like around like two hours. So Matt Fowler, Frank's uh, father gets a phone call that his son has been murdered and then goes to visit his wife, Ruth, who is conducting a young girl's choir. Okay, this scene, my God, the Balkan music that plays is like so powerful and effective in setting the tone for like such a shocking event. And, and I like how, no, he does not even go to the wife. I mean, they don't have that conversation. The camera doesn't show that. It's just implied that like what follows afterward it can only be so heartbreaking. Imagine that, you know, having to tell your wife that like our son just got shot to death, basically. Something it made me, it reminded me of was um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I will just say for any of our, our listeners out there, if you have seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you will know that one scene, um, which is very, very effective and also the music. Um, there's also uh, young girls who sing a very, similar to almost like this Balkan music too. It's, it's beautiful. So this, it, and the music's so haunting. So very, very effective. Um, but yeah, what follows is the aftermath of this event. 
the funeral, the funeral reception, then the reality of the facts that this person is no longer with you and how to navigate that. A scene that I found to be just good heavens. I, I was bawling at this point, actually. <laughs> um, Matt Fowler goes into his son's room and he looks at all the stuff intact, the drawings of his son's architectural work, the trinkets he collected over the years, the pillow that is slightly indented in from his head, essentially a life that was lived and that, that is now no longer there. And then there's like the ordinary life events, you know, post death of their son, um, Matt Fowler mowing the lawn, Ruth watching a Ricky Martin interview on TV, like, you know, just so these little like menial tasks, like that don't really mean much, but they're so, as a viewer, when you watch that, they're heavy. They're reminiscences, right? Like, mm-hmm. of, and it feels like somebody that was genuinely alive. That's I, I like those scenes a lot. The ordinary moments that I think most movies, most mainstream movies would not show. I was going to, I was going to say that this feels, the death feels like a climax of a film rather than yeah, something that yeah, maybe yeah, happens yeah. at the start of the act, the second act. So yeah, I know it's so, that's what it's, it's so climatic. So then you're like, okay, how can the movie, how can it go from the rest of there? And it's, and it's fine. All of it's fine. But yeah, I just wanted to say that, like, what I liked about those ordinary moments is that, like, grief is such an odd thing and everyone handles it so differently. So I thought those scenes, those ordinary life moments were very effective. Uh, another one, uh, Ruth, she looks through the mail and she finds a letter addressed to her deceased son, Frank, about winning $10,000. You know, like one of those like silly junk lottery <laughs> mail things that we get in the mail. And she just laughs. She just laughs. It's like, you know, that's what grief does. Like, you just... You know, I think for anyone who's like, who's ever lost anyone in your life, you'll know that those little things, like they just like come up at you, you know, like a letter in the mail addressed to a person who's no longer there. What can you do but laugh or cry, you know? So um, Matt Fowler, he cuts branches from a tree and he finds some old wooden steps buried from the branches. And the scene cuts to a flashback of a young Frank climbing up the stairs. And it's quick to the point, and it's just so beautiful. Basically, like this is how to do an effective flashback. It was almost like reminiscent of like like Terrence Malick's uh, "The Tree of Life," like very, very simplistic. There was no words. It was just a flashback of like the young son just like climbing up. So yeah, just I love stuff like that. But yeah, just to give an idea of like some of the critical reception, because like just to show you how much this movie obviously made an impact uh, around this time. Uh, Neil Norman of the Evening Standard quoted, Field has not only studied the masters of cinematic understatement, such as Ozu and Bergman, but that he fully understands their processes. Field's achievement is such a perfectly consummated marriage of intent and execution that he need never make another movie. I would not be alone, I think, in hoping he will make many more. Good Lord, what a, <laughs> what a thing to say. I know. And then, you know, Eric, I have to quote our boy, uh, Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's one of the best directed films of the year and that every performance has a perfect tone. I mean, I can go on, you know, I really can go on, but maybe I need not. Well, what I'm interested in, so Todd Fields, uh, yeah. what what has he gone on to after this? So after the whole clearly in the bedroom was such a knockout of a film for a debut film, no less. He did go on to make Little Children in 2006. Mm. And that was also, uh, I don't know if you remember, that was nominated too. I believe there was some nominations for that as well uh, at the Academy Awards. 
since then, I don't know. No one, like no one, no one really seems to know. Um, I guess that I think it was sometime 2016, I believe it was stated that Todd Field actually was tapped to do uh, an adaptation of Purity, the novel Purity, Mm. uh, and make that into like, um, like a limited series for Showtime, I believe. But I don't know. I think more recent reports have stated that like field has become somewhat of a more of a, like a recluse, Interesting. I, you know, Hey, don't, you know, portrait artists. I don't know. <laughs> this is all, I don't know. Like, you know, these, these great artists. Um, I'm sure he has his reasons. Um, no doubt. But no doubt. it would be wonderful if somebody of that caliber can come in and, you know, come to work again, but understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just kind of wish things were different, I guess. Field, he should be talked about as much as our great contemporary directors uh, working today. Um, and I think it's sad that he's kind of fallen out of the limelight. You know, this movie is a masterpiece. I don't use that lightly. <laughs> I know that that's like a, a really like loaded term at this point. But um, personally, if I were Field, I would be proud of this film. I would have been proud to have made this film. Basically, what I'm trying to say is go pick up the DVD because that's all there is right now um, and revel in the work of Todd Field. I'll bet a buck. Raise a buck. Say something for Christ's sake. Pussyfooting around me. You want me to stare at these cards all night? There are things of which I may not speak. There are dreams that cannot die. There are thoughts that make the strong heart weak and bring a pallor into the cheek and a mist before the eye. And the words of that fatal song come over me like a chill. A boy's will is the wind's will and the thoughts of youth are long, long thoughts. Okay, you got the two. I'm in there, I'm in there. I'll take one. Okay, you got it. Gonna need, oh, I need them all. Three. Make them good. Oh, on to my first film here. I remember seeing this film, a snippet of this film when I was really young. So there's this, you probably remember this, uh, Marissa, but there was a segment on Cartoon Network that was called Toonami. Toonami, yeah. Toonami <laughs> yeah, <I do>. is, <laughs> is the reason for a whole generation of kids to have fallen in love with Japanese animation or anime. Many of my friends, we all we all love the animation that we saw on there. Everything from Dragon Ball Z 
to Naruto to Inuyasha and even smaller ones like Yu Yu Hakusho. We grew up with that and there's a form of nostalgia for watching that as kids that we carry to this day. I know I speak for many of us when I say that. So this film, I didn't know it was a film until I revisited that same clip when I was in eighth grade to upon my greatest discovery, found that this film is a series of music videos connected into one singular narrative film. And to this day, still excites the hell out of me every time I watch it. And that is Interstellar 5555, the story of the secret star system. And it was directed by the group of Leiji Matsumoto, Daisuke Nishio, Hirotoshi Risen, and Kazuhisa Takanuchi, made in 2003. familiar with this already this film is a collaboration between Leiji Matsumoto a anime director who has made such series as Galaxy Express 999 Arcadia of My Youth Kareen Emeraldis and more and the legendary house duo Daft Punk and at this moment (laughs) I would like to give a moment of silence for Daft Punk which as of a month ago is no more yeah, so join us, guys. Okay, that's enough. And <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric, carry on. <laughs> Let's carry on. No, I mean, I was, I know you were just as sad as I was, Marissa, when you found out that they I were was, no more. And I was. Crushed, yeah. Yeah, but yeah heartbroken. Heart- heartbroken. But yeah. lately they've been in, they've been doing more behind the scenes stuff anyways. They haven't mm-hmm. released an album since 2013. It seems like they're not completely done. At least the alter ego of the robots maybe is done but yeah not basically people. basically we're like we're just like revisiting their their music we're just <laughs> we just keep listening to all their all their old music yeah keep the music alive yeah and this film too like I watched this when I found out because I was just obsessed I've been obsessed with this film and every time I watch it it just excites me again and again and again so to get into a little background here so Leiji Matsumoto I've mentioned that he is an anime uh artist and director And he draws mangas, which are then turned into anime, which mangas are like the art form comic of Japan and anime being the visual animated expression of that. His character styles and his themes, he's mostly affiliated with like space operas. And his themes really are about tragic heroes 
He has fragile heroines, but they have strong wills. Stories that feature oppressed forces on both Earth and in space. So very intergalactic. Definitely uh, a lot of ties back to this Imperial Japan rule and that era because he was growing up in that time. So it makes sense that a lot of his themes are dealing with sort of imperialism and like the conflict between oppression and the oppressed. And he has a wonderful quote on this collaboration with Daft Punk in which he says that musicians are like magicians. That's what I say. I've always had this dream or hope since my childhood. And the dream itself came towards me. And I have all these lights in my head. <laughs> I like I'm, that. I like that a lot. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's one of those muses, like ex- outward muses that you just kind of know. You, you see, especially when you see the film, you're like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about and how yeah. he expressed that and communicated that. Beautiful. Sorry, yeah, mu- musicians are mu- are magicians. Musicians are magicians. Say that uh, six times fast. Yeah. I but <laughs> I, I was like magicians. Okay, well, yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Makes a lot of sense. And uh, considering this duo here of Daft Punk, which is Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo, these two met when they were twelve years old, and they've had fun making music and playing music for all those years, and in trying to make the album homework and eventually discovery which this film is adapted from they said that they wanted to show that it was possible to do an album yourself in your bedroom and Mm. basically you know if you can if you believe you can achieve just in a nicer way saying it (laughs) yeah 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 basically this this, um (laughs) this album discovery took two and a half years to make and I love this story because nobody knows that before Discovery, they were actually people, but that during Discovery's production, they turned into robots. And Oh my God. They said what happened was that they had an accident in the studio (laughs) and they had to transform their bodies into robots. And funny enough, the album Discovery is like a mix of machine and human. And so they had they had sort of taken this idea of human machine harmony to a literal visual <laughs> <laughs> representation, like their own bodies eventually yeah. became part human, part machine. Mm. And so on this film specifically, they wanted to do something that had never been done before. And growing up for them, Japanese anime was a really big in France and they were big fans of it as kids. And in 2000, they approached Leiji Matsumoto and... Matsumoto was really excited about it. He said it was like a child's dream to him to be able to make this film. And what I find beautiful is that it's like this blending of cultures between France and Japan. So particularly because house music is truly based in France and the movements there and the underground scene there, it it is as French as anything else. And Japan and its anime is singularly that culture's art form. And so you have these two really distinct art forms blending together to create this beautiful film. But not only that, you have music and film coming together in what is a so super exciting film. And I'm going to get into it right now. So (laughs) (laughs) we begin through a wormhole, sends us into a distant galaxy. And immediately you see what Matsumoto was talking about, a stunning landscape of the cosmos here. Like, 
effervescent space does. The black spaces, like don't even look at the colors, just appreciate the black spaces. All these planets and stars and streaks of light are just beaming across the screen. Purples, blues, greens, it's like eye candy. Oh my gosh, I just eat it up every time I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Eric clearly loves this, yeah. (laughs) Easily, I can't even express how much I love this. Um, And then you fade in that one more time and oh it's just like I'm thinking about it right now in my head and it's giving Mm -hmm. me chills I just think it's the greatest thing I just saw the music video right now (laughs) mm -hmm. and so you kind of go from this you know big blanket of space into this little tiny planet and you're just you're slowly fading closer and closer in until you see the blue alien band performing one more time Mm, yeah and in a club of people just Mm -hmm. jamming and like okay this is something that I appreciate every time is that it's not just like adults jamming it's the whole entire like planet of people so you have like kids grandparents all ages like you got you know your nana and your papa like dancing to the song and it's so it's so adorable universal universal for sure it's -hmm. universal it's like so small details right I can easily Mm -hmm. get overlooked but it, it wasn't and you also appreciate that this still feels like a music video. So like when it stands alone, every single piece, when it stands alone, it's kind of its own interpretation of the song still. And that's what the music videos do really well is that they visually interpret the emotion of a song. And each one does that really well still, even if you watched it individually. But if you watch, so the story continues from this. And basically what happens is these droids come down and interrupt the party. And they're controlled by the evil Earl de Darkwood. <laughs> who is a who is a record evil producer? Earl the Dark <laughs> Yes. Okay. They didn't call him the Evil Earl the Dark Wood. <laughs> Be funny if they did. I would actually. Like yeah. But Darkwood is a music executive from Planet Earth, and his sole mission. <laughs> That's hilarious. Or I'm already getting where this is going. <laughs> his whole his he's trying to fulfill this prophecy of kidnapping aliens from distant planets that are musically gifted and turning them through the music industry machine and profiting off their records and financial success. And this blue band is the latest target of his plot. And so, yes, what? it's, a, it's <laughs> so, an insane. So silly, but like cool. <laughs> okay, let me, let me give you the caveat here. There is not a single line of dialogue in this entire film. I was, I looked that up too, Eric, actually. And I was just like, what? Like, there's no, there's no dialogue. It's all music. Nothing. Yes. And you know what acts as the dialogue is the music. The music oh, yeah. communicates dialogue. Yeah. Narration and emotional apexes here. There are mm-hmm. passages in songs that add meaning to this simple story. Like, it's not like, it's just, you know basic human emotions it's the the music actually gives it complexity that's yeah. what works brilliantly so not only that but like you get you, you kind of appreciate the music more because of that like it gives you a, a sonic texture that like I don't think anything else could have done for this film like it's it's beautiful. and it's Daft Punk so <laughs> well on that note say like, no more <laughs> say no more <laughs> you will appreciate daft punk even more because of that you know their music Mm. has this effect it's universal in that way you know it translates those emotions a specific moment that i really like is in the song chris sendall's 
Um, so at this point, they're performing and they are huge hits in, in planet Earth. So they actually get not only run through the machine, but they literally get transformed into Earthlings. So they paint their skin, <laughs> they give them Earth outfits. And so they look like they're just like a normal human band from, but nobody, nobody knows that they're from outer space. So while they're yeah. at this sort of like peak of their success, there's this moment in Crescendos where it's a rolling and scratching part. And like the DJ is like, like kind of like thing you know <laughs> <laughs> I love how you just yeah <laughs> but wicka, wicka, yep. wicka. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you right now like that release when it hits when the beat kicks back in and like it matches with the visuals uh like when the beat drops. When the beat drops, ah, <laughs> uh, you know, like, <laughs> wow. A few more things to say about this one. I think that it is the perfect fusion of anime and music. So when you're thinking about mm. artistic expression in the 21st century, right, you have in the past, you know, you, you've got certain key moments of, of artistic movements that like you just identify and you're like, like we study them to this day. In the, in the topic of CGI versus hand-drawn animation here, a lot of people have, you know, inputs on this. It's been a very controversial thing for the last couple of years as more and more children's animation shifts to CGI. There are some cost-effective things to doing that. But watch this film and tell me not that there is life in the hand-drawn animations here. There's an attention to detail that fills every single frame. Like you you just don't get the same thing in a computer animation. For example, Daft Punk cameos. <laughs> and they're at this, like, in the, in the film, there's, like, this Grammy Awards type celebration. And you see Daft Punk as, like, one of the nominees. And when they... Oh, my God. When they lose, they oh lose to the, to the band who are called the Crescendals at that point. Um, yeah. And when they lose, you see on the Gold Robot his little broken heart symbol on his helmet and like oh. <laughs> it's just there for a few frames but like that is something that yeah. is attention to detail also i never noticed this but in the song superheroes there there is a part where it sounds like synths are rising and you know the beat is kind of like escalating and i always thought it was just synthesizers but in the film what they do is it's a live performance and they put a violin band and i was like so brilliant like how they notice that attention to detail in the song and put that translation on the screen. I love it. Yeah. And um, yeah. something about us, that song. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, Eric. I was like, please tell me you're gonna talk about this song. This song. Like, I love that segment. I, lo I only say that segment because I've only seen the music video. But I not only do I love that song, I love the music video that like mm -hmm. that goes with it. Do you? So do you know? Take it away. <laughs> the whole you get blasted with some tie dye animation colors here. Oh yeah. my gosh! If you're not crying, you're smiling from just seeing this pure gift.
It's so sweet. It's so. I love that. Well, I love. The, I'm saying the music video, but I, yeah, I love the music video. But I love that segment. Um, probably part of the movie. Mm-hmm. But um, it's so sweet. And I love the song is just. They go together. Yes. They just do. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is like a perfect marriage of those two. You know, music and film. Music and film. Like I can't stress that enough. To conclude here, the ending. By the time you're done with it, it will either put a huge smile on your face. Or you'll be jamming out because you are listening to Daft Punk. <laughs> or both. Or both, yes. <laughs> or both. Yes. Um, so you recommend it to Daft Punk fans, huh? Like, I've never seen it, so I, I need to check this one out. But you recommended it to Daft Punk fans, I huh? expect Daft Punk fans to have pretty much already seen this. Already yeah, seen this. Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recommend this to the everyday viewer. Take what I say about globalization into consideration here because... I think there's more than just an artistic lesson here. I think that there is a bigger picture lesson here about how ideas merge and converge into something that's new. And talking about, you know, 21st century art form, this merging of a Japanese art form and a French art form to create something that is on the level of humanity is something that has not, I don't think has been a has achieved over the last couple of years as much as it should be. If we're talking about living in a a time of progression, I think that we haven't very much made steps forward in in most forms of art. I think this one is a great example of the contrary to that, but there just hasn't been enough of this. I think me personally, I think this film means something because of its influence, how it has inspired me to think about capabilities in filmmaking. Music videos, were a major part of the culture when this was released. And over time that's changed, but the film experimented with the potential of the music video format as an interpretation of an album. And that's something that I've tried to do personally in my own artistic endeavors. And so it's imagery translated to and in connection with sound. And to me, a total achievement in storytelling, a perfect blend of film and music kind of coexisting together and then fusing into this global art form. To me, it's perfect. And nothing has come close to that since. Yeah, we're definitely gonna miss uh, Daft Punk. So make sure you check out this film. And how, how would you find this film? Eric? So we can watch it on YouTube for free. It is there you go, available, <laughs> no excuses. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, search up Intercell of 5555 and it'll come up right away.
All right. And my second pick of the day is Bright Star, made in 2009, directed by Jane Campion. I had such a dream last night. I was floating above the trees with my lips connected to those of a beautiful figure. Whose lips? Were they my lips? I'm not sure he really likes me. Mr. Keats knows he cannot like you. He has no living and no income. He was a dreamer. Have you got John Keats's poem book? My sister has met the author and she wants to read it for herself to see if he's an idiot or not. She was a realist. All I wear, I've sewn and designed myself. Men's room, out, port's got to do a bit of writing. My stitching has more merit and admirers than your two scribblings put together. And I can make money from it. But every word he wrote inspired the rapture of first love. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness. From Academy Award winner Jane Campion comes a romance that would live forever. I get anxious if I don't see her. When I don't hear from him, it's as if I've died. As if the air is sucked out from my lungs. Mr. Keats is very brilliant. Was it successful? You taught me love. You never said only the rich. I must warn you of the trap that you're walking into, John. You'll lose your freedom permanently. For what? You are already the source of so much gossip. Apparently there's nothing I can do to persuade you of the gravity of this situation. We must cut the threads. No, I can't. I never will. You know I would do anything. It is a game. It is a game to her. There is a holiness to the heart's affection. You know nothing of that. Based on the true story of a brilliant poet and the bright star that was his shining light. I almost wish we were butterflies and lived but three summer days. Three such days with you I could fill with more delight than 50 common years could ever contain. Okay, so just to give a synopsis, in 1818, high-spirited young Fanny Braun finds herself increasingly intrigued by the handsome but aloof poet John Keats, who lives next door to her family friends. After reading a book of his poetry, she finds herself even more drawn to the taciturn Keats. Although he agrees to teach her about poetry, Keats cannot act on his reciprocated feelings for Fanny, since as a struggling poet, he has no money to support a wife. So I, I'm a big fan of the piano uh, with, with Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin, who actually uh, won the Academy Award for that role. But yes, I, I love this movie. And it was interesting revisiting Bright Star because I saw it initially when it came out and I was such a huge fan of it. Not to say that I'm not now. Um, it's just always interesting to revisit that movie, um, you know, later on. Just to give some backstory on the on the film. It was written by Jane Campion, but it was inspired by Andrew Motion's 1997 uh, biography of Keats. What I found out is that Motion served actually as the script, script consultant on the film. And the film's title is a reference to a sonnet by Keats titled, Bright Star, Would I Were Steadfast As Thou Art, which he wrote while he was with Braun. In addition to Bright Star, several other poems are recited in the film, including La, La Belle Dame, Sans Merci and Ode to a Nightingale. Many of the lines in the script are actually taken from Keats' letters. I have to talk about the cast because I think the cast is pretty 
pretty amazing, especially the two leads. Uh, so we have playing for John Keats is Ben Wishaw. I love this guy. He's in some phase, but one in particular that I'm actually a big fan was that one recent one, um, Mary Poppins. Mm, okay. The yeah, the the recent Mary Poppins was he plays like the the father in there. He's just such a lovable guy. But yeah, so Keats, um, just just for anyone who's not really familiar with John Keats, uh, he was actually one of the key figures in the second generation of the Romantic movement. Despite the fact that his work had been in publication for only four years before his death, um, during his lifetime, his poems were actually not generally well received by critics. And at the age of twenty five, he died believing he was a failure. There's unfortunately a lot of artists <laughs> um, back then. Um, but yeah, however, his reputation grew and he held significant uh, influence on many later poets. And then we have uh, the role of Fanny Braun. She is played phenomenally um, by Abby Cornish. And like the real life Fanny Braun, Fanny in the film is a fiery and fashionable 18 year old who spends her time creating dresses, hats, and various other garments. Um, but yeah, in the in the film, she's like portrayed as like somewhat of a flirt um, and she attends balls and she incites like Keats jealousy. Um, and though the real life Fanny Braun went on to marry and have children, she never actually sold Keats's uh, love letters. Um, they were sold af after her death um, by her children. And we have uh, Paul Snyder as Charles Armitage Brown, who is Keats' best friend, Carrie Fox as Fanny's mother. Um, I love the mother, by the way. Um, and then we have uh, Thomas Brody Sangster, uh, who you guys will uh, know from The Queen's Gambit. Um, he plays a role in there. Um, but yeah, he plays Samuel Braun, Fanny's younger brother. And then we have Edie Martin as Toots, uh, Fanny's younger sister. So uh, yeah, so so my thoughts from, from watching Bright Star is I think that Abby and Ben, like they have such major chemistry. Um, and I think that's really important and crucial, especially when you have like, when you have romance-based movies, you have romantic movies, like if they don't have chemistry, like you're not sold on the film. I don't know, what'd you say? Like, yeah, no, yeah. no doubt, yeah. Yeah, so I, I believe that's that's really important to have and they do, it's, um, it's really hot <laughs> that they have. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Abby Cornish, I think she's a phenomenal actress and I'm, I'm actually sad that I don't really hear about her too much. Do you? Like, No, yeah. I, I never hear, I mean, the only other film that I, I remember, I think that she was in was that one movie with Heath Ledger. It was like, I think it's called Candy. She, they wow. both play like drug yeah. addicts or something like that. I've never seen it, but I've always, I've always wanted to check it out, but I don't hear about Abby Cornish. And I was like, I'm like, kind of like still puzzled by it, like seeing the movie and I just, you just see how great she is in it. But yeah, interesting, because yeah, she's somebody that if I had, I recognize the name, and I recognize that I've seen something of hers, but I cannot tell you like, I know what, she's, what she's been in, she should be talked about, as many of the like actresses today that we know, like the, you know, the most popular ones that we have today, um, she should be talked about more. So mm. that's, that was, that's kind of upsetting that she maybe she probably is still working. I'm just I don't really hear about her in the same yeah, vein. It's as, a shame. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the character of Fanny Braun, like, I think she's, she's a really great female lead. And I'm going to go out and say this, but I think when you have, uh, like a female writer, you know, like, especially like, you know, with Jane Campion and, and just female writers in general, I think they could tap into how, 
how how just women are you know the things that we do rather than like just stereotypes of women so that was just something I noticed with Fanny Braun like she's really portrayed in the film as like she's she's strong she's independent she's motivated creative but also empathetic towards John Keats and his brother um who his brother in the in the film historically too is like his brother uh died so but another thing that I like that was probably also a nice touch coming from like a more like female-based writer and, and just maybe Jane Campion in her way of telling the story was I also loved how Fanny's mother was also very sympathetic. Um, I feel like you don't really get that side in a lot of like period piece movies. It's always like the villainous mother, like, you know, like something like that. But in this movie, like it was just nice to see that that different side for a change um, because in, in, all the, in all the scenes where like Fanny is like, she's so like lovesick and she's just like, she's like, I'm not eating type of thing. Her mother's like really like, yeah, her mother's not like, you know, yelling and nagging as I feel like is very stereotypical uh, for a lot of uh, roles of mothers in, in movies, but mostly specifically like period piece movies. Instead, she's just like, I don't know. It's just the way the mother acts towards her. It's, it's very, it's very loving. Um, so that was, that was something I liked a lot. Um, but yeah, I just have to talk about like a certain standout scene um, that, I mean, if you're not crying at this moment, <laughs> you're, you're pretty robotic. Um, but yeah, there's a heartbreaking scene uh, when Mr. Brown, uh, Keith's best friend, he tells Fanny that Keith has died. And oh my God, Abby Cornish is like, she plays that role. Like you really feel the heartbreak. Well, specifically, if you ever lost someone, but if you ever lost, like, not just like heartbreak, but as in that this person has died, someone that you love, you really feel for Fanny, you know? So yeah, I was bawling at this moment. <laughs> but yeah, um, some creative choices that I like that um, I think Jane Campion that she she did for this film was um, Ben Wishaw actually reads John Keats' poem over the end credits throughout the whole way. Like I, I, I watched all the end credits and he's reading uh, some lines and, and it's perfect. And I was just like, that was, that was just a really nice touch that, that um, Jane Campion gave to the film. But I also love how the poems are incorporated into like every possible scene. It's like literally woven into the fabric of this film. So because Bright Star, John Keats, this is all about poetry and it was just, it's important to have that into every single scene. So that, that was really um, a nice creative choice. Right. And that makes sense. Um, Campion knows, I guess, that, you know, if you're if you're going to adapt something, like capturing the essence of it and always being mindful of, like, ways to incorporate it just outside your, you know, elements of film, like narrative and, and mm -hmm. character choice and just adapting those things. Having it be there, like, kind of with the film is, is a really, it sounds like a really great choice. Yeah, because, you know, in talking about in terms of adaptation and, um, you know, she based this off of uh, what John Keats's life and, and some of his poems. So, you know, essentially, she's taking a lot of creative liberties here. So to have, you know, uh, Ben Wishaw recite uh, some of the poems in the end, that's a nice touch. And just to have just to have in the story of the whole film, like them read certain lines like it's she's taking a lot of uh creative liberties here and I think they do work that sounds almost theatrical like in the it's like something you know after you see a play and the audience comes out and then you know give the bow that's sort of like what mm -hmm. like she has Keats doing here at the end coming back and, and reading the poems that's so interesting 
I know, you know, very well. She could have easily just, um, okay, the movie ended, you know, roll the credits, roll the music, you know, roll the cinematic music, but it wasn't like that, you know? She she had the the lines and Keats's poetry is so romantic. It's it's beautiful, really. So I want to say that in conclusion, I think that the film does a great job at showing the immensity of first love, the beauty, the little things, the heartbreak, like the kind that you feel uh, as though as you're dying or can't breathe with literally that one scene I talked about that heartbreaking scene with like Fanny when she receives the news that like Keats has died she's literally like she walks away out of the room from Mr. Brown and she goes into the room and she's sobbing but it's like a sobbing of like if you ever experience heartbreak from first love specifically she's just like she like pounds on her chest she's just like um on her on her heart and she's just like I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And most likely she's probably having a panic attack is my guess. But she like calls for, she's just like, mama, mama. Like she like needs her mother and her mother comes. And it's just, it's such a sweet moment, but also very, very incredibly sad. You know, she lost the love of her life. Also this film, I cannot talk about with like saying that there's stunning, stunning cinematography. There's a one scene where Fanny's in her room and she's reading this letter about this line about something that like they're butterflies they're butterflies for each other in some, I'm sorry, I'm obviously <laughs> butchering the poetry here, but um, bear with me. Yeah, she's, she's reciting something about that. They're like butterflies for each other. And that when he thinks of her, he thinks of like a butterfly or something. And so in the room while she's reading uh, his, his poems uh, in this letter, there's all these butterflies floating all in the room. It's a very beautiful scene. Um, and there's another one where Fanny reads another letter in like a field of like it looks like lavender I, it might not be lavender but it it's similar so it's like you have this striking purple it's just so visually gorgeous and you know the kids are playing in the background i just i love stuff like that there's nowhere no mama they love the heat we're gonna lose them listen I love you more in that I believe you have liked me for my own sake. I've met with women whom <sighs> I really think would like to be married to a poem to be given away by a novel. Mama, don't be cross. When I don't hear from him, it's as if I've died, as if the air is sucked out from my lungs. And I'm left desolate, but when I receive a letter, I know our world is real. It's the one I care for. Watch the butterfly. Well, move it. But yeah, I love the costumes. Costumes obviously play a big role because Fanny, um, she sews a lot of her clothes and She's, she's really confident in that too. So I love that she had that in some ways that was like her autonomy, you know, that she, she did that for herself. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's an interesting adaptation of how they based the, uh, the biography of John Keats' life and his poems and essentially made them into a love story and a very effective one at, at that too. So interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, great choice for an adaptation. And you know, what kind of stood out for me is that I felt like even though it's adapted from Keats work in life, mm -hmm. I've always felt like Fanny was more of the main character here. Oh yeah. 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 No, no, definitely. That's the way I saw it too. I was like, 
this may have revolved around Keats, you know, his biography and his poems. But was this was this Fanny's story? Yes, it was Fanny's story. It was totally Fanny's story, um, especially when you have, you know, the last scene where she finds out that uh, Keith has died and she goes into the room. That was her moment. You know, that was like her heartbreak. And um, and her mother was there for her. It's just. Yeah. So it was definitely this was Fanny's story. And if you notice the poster, too. <laughs> which I which I think is interesting to know, you know, talking about like this is Fanny's story is that um, I believe like in some, you know, romantic posters, you have like, you know, like the guy like kind of, you know, looking over at the girl. But in this one, you have Fanny actually looking over John Keats as like she's really like she's she's the one that she's like the com comforter one, you know, she's like she she comforts him in that way. So it's almost like a, a role reversal because you always think of like, okay, the, you know, the male, like he's dominant in that way. But it's like, here is that Fanny was like, if anything, she nurtured John Keats in that way. So I thought the, the poster uh, for the film did a really good job of like portraying that, that role. And Jane Campion, what I do know about her is that she is always challenging that male gaze. And mm. this is, that seems like an interesting way that she's done that. I want a good example of that, so. Totally. Yeah, I, I agree. So um, yeah, I do recommend seeing uh, Bright Star. I did um, pay for it on Amazon. I believe you could pay like it's like $3.99 um, to stream it. But yeah, I do recommend it, um, if anything, to see quite an effective like adaptation. How literally Jane Campion made something and took it into her own creative way. It's just beautiful. My dearest lady, I'm now at a very pleasant cottage window, looking onto a beautifully hilly country, with a view of the sea. The morning is very fine. I do not know how elastic my spirit might be, what pleasure I might have in living here if the remembrance of you did not weigh so upon me. Ask yourself, my love, whether you are not very cruel to have so entrammeled me. So destroyed my freedom. For myself, I know not how to express my devotion to so fair a form. I want a brighter word than bright, a fairer word than fair. I almost wish we were butterflies and lived but three summer days. Three such days with you I could fill with more delight than 50 common years could ever contain. When you confess this in a letter, you must write immediately and do all you can to console me in it. Make it rich as a drought of poppies to intoxicate me. Write the softest words and kiss them, that I may at least touch my lips where yours have been. At number two here, I have the film Smooth Talk, directed by Joyce Chopra, released in 1985. Excuse me, excuse me, miss? Is that the way to look? Dip, 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 oh. Is that the way to look? Dip, 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 oh. Is that the way to look? Yes. 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 Yes.
So you'll um, be at the mall for six hours. Mother! No, I was just wondering, because yesterday you were there for four hours and you didn't have a chance to buy me a paint roller. I mean, just kind of check it out. Not me. I'm going to the beach. So this film by Joyce Chopra is a drama thriller, and I dare say a coming of age in a very strange way. And it's about young Connie Wyatt, a free spirit 15-year-old girl that gets in over her head after a flirtatious encounter with the malevolent Arnold friend. And this stars Laura Dern as Connie. And I think Laura Dern just is Connie. You see her in this and just pretending like you I didn't know. see everything that she's done up to this point, you know she was going to be a big, big Hollywood mm-hmm. talent. She's just immaculate in this, you know? She she is Connie. Equally as talented in this film is Treat Williams as creepy Arnold friend. I'll get into his role. Creepy in Arnold friend. And uh, <laughs> we're going on a little uh, connection here with the last episode with the uh-huh. big chill, but we have Mary Kay Place who plays Connie's mother. Yeah, so we'll see if I can fit in a Mary right. Kay Place film on the next episode. Can I add in, can I add to that, that for uh, for you listeners who also know My So-Called Life, <laughs> she is also uh, a mother in there as well for you for you listeners. Um, I'm a big fan of that show, so I had to shout out Mary Kay Place yep. in that movie. I mean, sorry, in that in that TV show. She plays she plays a mother on like, like with Every that type movie. of- yeah almost every movie minus the big chill actually what's funny in the big chill is that she wants to be a mother and so that oh my god (laughs) okay yeah is getting typecasted much she's getting typecasted yeah okay or has been typecasted but Mm -hmm. nonetheless she is very talented so to give a little background about this film this film has been adapted from the short story by joyce carol oates an american writer and it is where are you going where have you been? First thing I'm going to preface is by saying that before you watch this film, I do highly recommend you read the short story. Because before or before. after? Oh, you okay. can read it after. <laughs> I just think that because, you know, you had mentioned to me before that you had questions about this film. And I just think that they're answered by the short story. I have a feeling I had a feeling that was that was gonna I guess we'll go into that Eric but so this short story where are you going where have you been Uh, Joyce Carol Oates actually adapted this partly from the story of the Pied Piper of Tucson now this man was named Charles Schmidt and he was a serial killer that was murdering young teenage girls in the 60s he was described as a swinger attractive charismatic He was always hanging around the teenage crowd, but he was not a teenager. Much like Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused, he was an older guy that just could not get out of hanging out with younger folks. And he would go to really strange lengths to upkeep his look and to act like a teenager. It's been noted that he had stuffed rags and tin cans into his boots so that his small five foot three frame would look a little larger than it usually is. He dyed his hair jet black. He caked his face with makeup in order to appear more bronze. And he wore pale cream lipstick and mascara to mask his original looks and to look more attractive. Very strange. Yeah. And he would lie to people that he was smuggling cars into Mexico. And that's where he got his quote unquote riches that he would show off with his fancy gold car when really he'd just be getting money from his generous mom. 
<laughs> so this guy's a total loser, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like that. But he is also had he also, you know, has this side of him, serial killer. He's completely demented, psychopath. And the reason for these murders is that he kind of went on a whim and asked himself one day whether he could kill somebody and get away with it. And okay, so he's like a sociopath, psychopath kind of guy. A total, total cool. psychopath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and but obviously he didn't get away with it. He was caught and sentenced and quickly convicted. And he actually died a couple years later after being attacked by other inmates who stabbed him to death. Mm, so it goes. But what Oates found so intriguing about this, and this is quoted from her, she says, it was not after all the mass murderer himself who intrigued me, but this disturbing fact that a number of teenagers from quote unquote good families aided and abetted his crimes. It was inexplicable. Now, Schmidt was known to have accomplices, but they just didn't know exactly who it was. But he would go around bragging about killing these girls and nobody raised any flags. It was almost as if those that either nobody believed him or they had accepted within their community, the teenage community, that like that that was just what he did. And that's really what Oates question here. And there's themes. She drew themes from this allegory of death and the maiden, which is a medieval German engraving of a beautiful maiden with death just around the corner to seduce her with death disguised as erotic romance. Upon seeing this film, I, I think that kind of is making a lot of sense here about the, the role that Arnold Friend plays in this film. And mm -hmm. in addition to being inspired by that, she was also inspired by the music of Bob Dylan. And particularly when she was writing the song, she was listening to the song, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. There's a certain line that Arnold Friend says at, at the end of this film too, when, when he says, um, my sweet blue-eyed girl, and it's also pulled from the short story, and in which Connie replies, what if my eyes were brown? And so- What was that, what was that about? I'm so, you know, there's moments in the film that had me scratching my head, mostly from a standpoint of, I can tell this is a movie that was adapted from something like from a story and I feel like what I'm not getting is in the story and I have my issues with that though so yes. okay yeah that's so you're right because I do agree that in some ways this film is so closely tied to that short story that sometimes it does not stand on its own two feet yeah and make logical sense for a viewer that hasn't read that story I mm -hmm. upon seeing this film I had that same issue because I noticed those things. Well, when Connie says, what if my eyes were brown? So in the story, what she actually, she actually doesn't say that. And what happens is that Oates actually writes what he did, what Arnold Friend didn't notice was that her eyes were brown. So it's different there. Yeah. And how would you ever know that? You know, how would you ever know that that was the context? Um, and I, I just, I don't like stuff like that. You know, I, I feel like a movie should stand on its own. You do not need the supplemental uh, because it's an adaptation. It should be able to showcase that on its own. Here's where the film, I think, justifies its, itself because the ending to the film is far different from the ending to the short story, but they're related. And it doesn't 100% stand on its own, but what it does do is it takes the original ending of the short story and subverts it. And the way that it subverts it is that it takes that death and the maiden allegory 
in which death is hunting a woman just around the corner. And it subverts it to say that, no, in fact, it is the woman who claims her identity and her essence as a, as a, as a human and flips that around to say, no, this is just a process that we go through. This is part of who we are. And the way that it does it is this. So when Connie says, what if my eyes were brown? That line is added in there for Connie to stand up and say that this choice to leave the house is her own. Now you'll see that in the short story, Connie is a victim of Arnold Friend when leaving the house. She's under his spell. Mm-hmm. Do you see where the where the I, subversion I got, is? I got that. It's just that line. Yeah. That was, oh. a, little, that was a, little, a little corny, I, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> a little cornball-y, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess. But I, I noticed that, though, Eric, is that, like, throughout the film, I can tell that there's obviously a lot I'm not understanding because it's something I would have to read. Yes. And um, I have seen other movies like that. And I have also have issues with that as well. I'm not saying I don't, I didn't like this film. I just was, like I said, I had questions. So yeah, that was. That's, having read the short story before watching this film, I think it, it's, this film is an enricher of that, of that story. And in a lot of ways, a good example of an adaptation because it takes the story and create something new out of it from an original source. Is it a good film on its own? It, you know, it can't yeah. explain everything. And I'm gonna be honest that it didn't, it didn't really, watching it as itself didn't really excite me in the way that I was hoping it would. Mm-hmm. But as an example of adaptation, I think it is particularly brilliant. And, and here's an interesting note by Oates that she says, about the film. She says, my difficulties with smooth talk have primarily to do with my chronic destination, a justifiable shyness, I'm sure, about seeing and hearing the work of mine abstracted from its contexture of language. All writers know that language is their subject, quirky word choices, pattern of rhythm, enigmatic pauses, punctuation marks. Where the quick scanner sees quick writing, the writer conceals nine-tenths of the iceberg. What I'm understanding she's saying is that that translation from words to visuals, it does not equate to the same thing. She's saying the argument that I had at the beginning yeah. that you cannot compare a work a, a work in writing to a work in visual as equal. So she is was worried about her writing being misinterpreted by a translation to the screen that does not equal the same thing because it can't. It can't be the same thing. No. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, we're talking about fidelity to to a film. Was this film probably trying to be to quote, you know, faithful to the to the short story? Um, I think so. And I don't think it was particularly this is my personal opinion. I don't think it was particularly effective in doing that. If anything, in the end, where I was saw, I was so happy when Treat Williams popped up. Because that first hour, I was just like, okay, what's going on? Like, I saw that it has, it was building on the tension throughout. When Treat Williams popped mm-hmm. up, I was like, yes, because it's going that way. But the ending yeah. did not do it for me. The ending did not do it for me. I was just like, oh, man, this movie, it went there. And then it just fell short, in my opinion. I was like, I, I saw the tension it was building. Had it maybe 
played it straight with that, I think it would have been, oh my God, who knows? This would have been like something, you know, like, cause I, I was like, okay, it's going, throwing in mm-hmm. a thriller aspect now, but it didn't, it didn't play with thriller aspect. It stopped. And I was just like, okay, I, I wanted someone to die in the end. <laughs> I wanted someone to die in the end. I, like I really did. Cause it was already, it introduced the thriller aspect by throwing in Treat Williams. I was like, okay, major, major tension here. The tension is so thick, you know? Um, but then it just, oh my God, I dropped the ball on that. And I was just like mad. That's a really so, great point. Yeah. And I think in the story, it, it does the same. It takes the same path in tension, right? It builds and builds and builds and builds. And that yeah. final paragraph that she writes is this incredible release of uh, an epiphany. Like you get where she's going. And the, the, the film doesn't do that. The film takes you, squeezes you, squeezes you, no, and then lets it you go. doesn't. And then gives you a little kind of a happy back, ending. You know? like- <laughs> right? Kind of like a cheerful, like jovial ending. And I was just like, what is this? Okay, her family came back. Like, I was like, no, no. Like, had maybe they saw, like, <laughs> looked at where the film was going, not where you wanted it to go. At, look, look at what you had. If you saw what you had, like, you would know that it's going in that direction. But um, that happens, you know, sometimes or a lot of times with directors is like, they're like, no, 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 they insist on that. But if you actually see where your story has already been going and you play it that way, hmm, you can have, you know, hey, chef's kiss, you have something beautiful. But yeah, I was very, I was very let down by that ending. I was like, okay, cool. Her family came back and it's just like, you know, it's, it just looked too, it looked too picture perfect. And I didn't buy that. Credit to Joyce Chopra and writer Tom Cole, um, who was our partner writing at this time, and for them for trying to subvert also an expectation, because I think it is also, they're trying to avoid the trappings of the thriller genre, having her be killed at the end. And instead, they tried something different. It didn't work. I think, though, that thematically, there's something there that makes a lot of sense, though. And in that regard, I'll leave it with a quote by Joyce Carol Oates here. Um, By the way, all these quotes are from a written piece for the New York Times that she discusses this film as well as her short story, and it is brilliant. I'll keep it in the show notes. But she says, the writer works in a single dimension. The director works in three. I would fiercely defend the placement of a semicolon in one of my novels, but I probably would have deferred fairly quickly to Joyce Chopra's decision to reverse the story's ending. Turn it upside down, in a sense, so that the film ends not with death, but upon a sense of reconciliation and rejuvenation. The story deliberately betrays itself as allegorical in its conclusion. In closing thoughts, yes, it's a good example of adaptation, but perhaps probably a good film that doesn't stand on its own two feet. So keep that in mind if you watch this. Um, And whoever wants to stream this, uh, don't go through the same thing that I went through with last second trying to find out where to where to watch this film because you will be unsuccessful however you can order this as a dvd online blu-ray mm-hmm. on blu-ray i wish this was more available and it was for a time being but you you take what you can and uh check it out a uh, definitely an interesting film i'm so glad i i have a copy of it um and i'm so glad i watched it you know and, and got to view it for for this uh for this episode and i i believe that it was yeah it was restored huh from yeah. uh, criterion so yeah it is i think you know i love i love stuff like that i love to support stuff like that um from lesser known uh works of film so 
um, yeah, pick up the copy and see for yourself whether uh, you enjoy the story or not. Your mother knows you go over there to eat? Oh, she knows. Okay. I look right in your eyes. Well, I see her a bunch of trashy daydreams. Hey. I'm Arnold Friend, and that's my real name, and that's what I want to be to you. If I ever catch you fooling around, young lady, I will purge Well, you were none too careful yourself, were you? I mean, like, you're some example to try to tell me. Hey, it's real nice. And you couldn't ask for nobody better than me or more polite. I'm your lover, Connie. You're my what? Yes, I'm your lover. You don't know what that is, but you will. You're not saying these things. Hell, everybody's scared the first time. That's why I'm so specially nice. What do I do now? Treat Williams, Laura Dern, Mary Kay Place, Elizabeth Barrage, Levon Helm. Smooth talk. All right. And my last pick of today is The Insider, made in 1999, directed by Michael Mann. They're afraid of you, aren't they? They should be. The following is a sneak preview of the best-reviewed film of the year. An insider ready to speak the truth. And I want to go on the record. A reporter who will help him reveal it. What does this guy have to say that threatens these people? Together, I was told... Don't talk! Who is this? They will risk everything. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Al Pacino... He's only the key witness in the biggest public issue in history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. Why? Because the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. Russell Crowe. I have to put my family's welfare on the line. My girls are crying. My children need me. You wish you hadn't come forward? You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? The movie critics call deeply moving. For you and I still fight. A powerful edge of your seat thriller. It will pin you to your seat. The best film of the year. Nominated for five Golden Globes. You go public, nothing will ever be the same again. There's dad on TV. The Insider. So just to give a synopsis of The Insider, um, this is actually a true story of Jeffrey Wigan a tobacco industry whistleblower as he came under fire for a 60 minutes interview he gave. Although the story was pulled, Wigan was the subject of numerous lawsuits and smear campaigns. So this movie uh, was written by Eric Roth and Michael Mann, and it was actually based off uh, the journalist Mary Brenner's 1996 Vanity Fair article, The Man Who Knew Too Much. So this was actually an influential article on tobacco industry whistleblower Jeffrey Wigan. Uh, Mann began collecting a massive amount of documents to research the events depicted in the film, such as like depositions, news reports, and 60-minute transcripts. Mann and Roth wrote several outlines together and talked about the structure of the story. Um, after he and Mann wrote the first draft together at a Broadway deli in Santa Monica, Roth met Wigan and the whistleblower was still under his confidentiality agreement and would not break it for Roth or man. And it's actually interesting, like upon researching um, some stuff for this film, um, Roth's initial impressions of Wigan were actually that he came across as like unlikable and defensive. And 
<laughs> I can I can see that because the one who plays uh, Jeffrey Wigan is actually Russell Crowe. Mm. And oh my God, one of ooh, one of the best, if not the best Russell Crowe performance I've seen, but um, better than Gladiator. <laughs> I mean, oh, just kidding. This is gonna be like, I know. Am I gonna say yes? Um, yes. Sorry, people who might like no, the Gladiator, but it's um, it's not real competition. I'm, I believe you. Uh, no, for sure, that's a great movie. But I do have to say, I do like Russell Crowe here. Like, he is really top notch, and he comes across as so unlikable too. Like, to me, that just that that speaks to me as like he embodies his character, knowing that Roth said that about Wigan that like he came across as unlikable and defensive I could kind of see that because like that's the way he was portrayed in the film as well so um but yeah like as they continued to write more drafts the two guys made minor adjustments in the chronology and invented some uh, extraneous dialogue but also stuck strictly to the facts whenever possible um however Mann and Roth were not interested in making a documentary so um I just want to go into the incredible cast because my god like you couldn't have drafted like <laughs> this cast. Uh, it's so phenomenal. Starting with Al Pacino as Lowell Bergman. Uh, so Al Pacino was actually Mann's only choice to play Lowell Bergman. Um, to research for the film, Mann and Pacino actually hung out with reporters from Time Magazine and spent time with ABC News. Uh, Pacino actually met Bergman to help get into the character. And then there's Russell Crowe as Dr. Jeffrey Wigan. Val Kilmer was actually originally considered for uh, by man for the role of Jeffrey Wigan. Um, but then the role went on to Crowe, who was 33 at the time. And he put on 35 pounds for the role. <laughs> he shaved back his hairline. He bleached his hair seven times and had a daily application of wrinkles and liver spots to his skin to transform himself into Wigan, who was actually uh, in his early to mid 50s during the events when they were depicted in the film. Method acting. <laughs> oh, Crow, you're so good. That's um, Christian, Christian Bale levels of <laughs> I know. deforming your body. Oh yeah, totally. And, and um, but it was, it was quite effective, I have to say. So, um, but yeah. Uh, finding out that Crow was actually not able to talk to Wigan about his experiences because uh, Wigan was actually still bound to his confidentiality agreement during much of the film's development period. Um, so to get a handle on, on uh, Wigan's voice and how he talked, Crow actually listened to a six-hour tape of Wigan. So just, he, you could tell, he went all in for this role. And then we have Christopher Plummer as Mike Wallace, mm, R.I.P. I know. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, he is much, much loved. And uh, one of my favorite roles from him is um, in Knives Out. Mm, um, but yeah, great. he's, yeah, <laughs> I know, respect. Um, but yeah, he's great at, He's great in, um, in The Insider. And then we have Philip Baker Hall as Don Hewitt, Lindsay Krause as Sharon Tiller, Debbie Mazar as Debbie DeLuca, and Michael Gambon as... Um, the CEO, uh, Thomas Sandifer. And for you guys, Dumbledore. <laughs> Harry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter's uh, professor Dumbledore will know. Um, did I call him Dumbledore? I did call him Dumbledore. <laughs> did you, Eric? <laughs> yeah. Dumbledore or Dumbledore? <laughs> Dort. Dort, okay. But yeah, Dumbledore. Um, but yeah, in this role, actually, uh, it's very brief, by the way. Um, but my God, is he chilling. His role is so chilling. He's a, he's basically um, 
uh, he's a tobacco CEO. And, you know, in this movie, it, it does a good job of portraying them like literally as like gods, you know, like these, these uh, tobacco CEOs, um, I believe they call, like they were like the uh, seven of them that they talked about in the film. They always repeatedly talked about seven CEOs, but yeah, these, these guys, they're just so threatening, so much money, you know, filthy, filthy rich. Um, but yeah, Michael Gambon, like he, he plays him pretty, pretty creepily, like um, just really threatening too. I love the opening shot um, right off the bat. You have this shot of um, this like fabric and it starts off that way. And you're just like, you, it's already cost, you're like claustrophobic. You're like, okay, what is this? And then the, the shot like goes more out. And then you see that it's literally the opening shot of a bag over Lowell's head. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, what's going on? Basically you find out that he, he is, I believe somewhere in the Middle East and he's trying to, he's like in a, in a car with his bag over his head and he's trying to get a story. He's trying to get a story uh, with a sheik. So already kinetic energy, you know, like, and I, I feel like Michael Mann is known for that kind of stuff, like in movies like he, um, Miami Vice, Eric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a great establishing sequence about like the crazy world of journalism and the lengths that journalists normally go to get like a good story. So I want to talk about some standout scenes. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a really funny scene in the beginning of the movie involving a fax machine. <laughs> Do they print their asses on that fax machine? I, no, I feel like no, that's no. such a trope. <laughs> it's not. It's not like funny in like that way, like a gag, like like fart kind of joke way. It's more like um, it involves literally like it's like like uh like see like these back to back scenes of like Al Pacino. So it's like you have Lowell like um pretty much like sending a fax to Jeffrey Wigan. So Jeffrey Wigan <laughs> is in his room, and there's like the fact like okay, these are like the '90s, right? Late '90s here, like you know, still heavily, heavily about the fax machine. So like Al Pacino's character, he sends a fax, like, I need to talk to you. Like, cause he wants to, uh, he wants Dr. Jeffrey Wigan to essentially um, what happens is Al Pacino gets a stack of papers kind of about something that has to do with like a tobacco company and he can't understand the literature in it. So he needs Jeffrey Wigan. So that's why he's trying to get a hold of Jeffrey Wigan. So he calls uh, Wigan's household and his wife answers and just like no he doesn't want to talk to you and Al, Pacino, Al Pacino's character is like are you sure and and she's like no 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 like we're sure because what happens immediately in the beginning of the movie like right off the bat is Jeffrey Wigan gets fired from from the company um from that tobacco company so Al Pacino is trying to get a hold of Jeffrey Wigan so he, okay, so he can't get through the household because the wife answers and like, she's just like, nope, doesn't want to talk to you. So boom, there's that. But then, so she, he's just like, okay, well, a fax, fax machine. So he like writes on the fax machine, like, I need to talk to you. Like, can we talk? And he sends it to, he sends it through the fax. And then like, but the tension building through like the fax machine and it's just like, then you're just like waiting for like the slowness of like the paper to come out. And it's just like, so like Jeffrey Wiggins character, he like looks at like the fax and he's just like the paper slowly coming out. And it's just like, can I talk? And then like cuts back to like Al Pacino's character and the paper slowing out is like, no. (laughs) It It goes like back and forth. And like, I just never thought so much tension can build from receiving a fax. <laughs> truly, truly a product of the Michael, 90s here. Michael Mann is in, inventing a new language here. 
I know a uh, thriller of a fax machine. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that scene was like probably unintentionally funny, but I also found it to be amazing. Um, so then another favorite scene of mine um, had to do with a courtroom hearing where Wiggins attorney is speaking and a man starts to interpret um, <clears throat> Wiggins attorney. And he really starts to threaten Wigan from saying what, like saying what he wants to say. And Wigan's attorney played brilliantly by Bruce McGill. Um, for you guys who like know like Bruce McGill, like he's a lot, he's like a character actor. Um, also like probably typecasted too as like this guy with like a heavy like Southern drawl. <laughs> so he has this like heavy like Southern accent. And <laughs> Bruce McGill's character, he yells at the man who keeps like interrupting Jeffrey. And basically, Bruce McGill, he like yells at him and he's just like, wipe that smirk off your face. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's so intense and like, just, oh my God, phenomenal acting from Bruce McGill. That is correct. In other words, it acts as a drug. I object to the form of question. It acts as a drug on I the body. Object to the form. It acts as a drug. Object. Were you then echoing here? Your objection has been recorded. She typed it into her little machine over there. It's on the record. So now I'll proceed with my deposition of my witness. Does it act Dr. Wigan, I am instructing you not to answer that question. In accordance to the terms of the contractual obligations undertaken by you, not to disclose any information about your work at the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, and in accordance with the force and effect of the temporary restraining order that has been entered against you, by the court in the state of Kentucky. That means you don't talk. Mr. Motley, we have rights here. Well, you got rights and lefts, ups and downs and middles. So what? You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face. Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony, whether the hell you like it or not. So I want to say that my last favorite scene involves Al Pacino, Christopher Plummer, Philip Baker Hall, and a lawyer character. So this lawyer tells Lowell to cut an alternate version of Wiggins' interview. And this is an interview that is uh, done earlier in the film that Mike Wallace uh, does with Jeffrey Wiggins who's now is like the whistleblower. Essentially, the whole story is that Jeffrey Wigan is sitting on some information with this tobacco company that the certain chemical um, that is used in this in the cigarette is, um, I guess it's, it's pretty problematic is what it comes down to. Like it can hurt a lot of people. And I, I get it, like, you know, we all know that like nicotine, you know, kills and all that stuff. But this chemical, Jeffrey has a problem with this chemical and he can't talk about it because he signed a confidentiality agreement. But what happens is the whole premise is that when he speaks up about this certain chemical that is just problematic, when he brings that up to the company, they fire him. That's why he, he got fired. So he feels in his conscience that the American people must know about this chemical. So that's why he is the whistleblower. So this whole thing is that he does an interview with Mike Wallace, who um, is the interviewer on 60 Minutes. 
And the whole thing is the lawyer tells Lowell to cut an alternate version of Wiggins interview or rather cut him out entirely because what they find out then is that the lawyer and then the head of, uh, I believe like CBS, um, they tell like the people for 60 minutes is that essentially they can be sued heavily from this tobacco company. And because the tobacco company, like they're a huge threat, they have so much money. And Al Pacino's character, uh, he's just like, well, what are we talking about here? Like, what's the threat? And then uh, the lawyer character and the, the head of uh, CBS, they're like, well, the, the big problem is that essentially if it came down to it, that this tobacco company can own the network if they lose, if they lose in this, in this lawsuit. So it doesn't look good is the whole thing. No. So Al, Al Pacino, he plays the journalists like as basically he believes in in the integrity of journalism you know he believes in the integrity of telling the truth it's so important to his to his you know his his ethos like his ethos in a way is that he needs to tell this story and now he's getting threatened by a lawyer and the head of cbs because why there's a lawsuit from a tobacco company and so Lowell, the character Al Pacino is like, he doesn't buy it. He's just like, no. So Lowell makes a really compelling speech about the integrity of telling the truth and how it's, it's just such a, a powerful speech because like you're rooting for him, even though you really know that these corporate people have the upper hand. Are you suggesting that she and Eric are influenced by money? No, no, of course they're not influenced by money. They work for free. And you are a volunteer executive producer. CBS does not do that. And you're questioning our journalistic integrity. No, I'm questioning your hearing. You hear reasonable and tortious interference. I hear potential Brown and Williamson lawsuit jeopardizing the sale of CBS to Westinghouse. I hear shut the segment down, cut Wigan loose, obey orders, and fuck off. That's what I hear. You're exaggerating. I am? You pay me to go get guys like Wigan to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits, he talks. He violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement. And he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on a limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You are a fanatic, an anarchist, you know that? If we can't have a whole show, then I want half a show rather than no show. But oh no, not you. You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? Because that happens to be what Mike and I and some other people around here do. Right. This feels like a very American story. And I think Thomas Mann tells these American stories like one of the best ways, like one of the best directors telling these, because I think he gets to the root of the the root of the theme every single time. Mm -hmm. And coming back to that idea of like corruption in American society, how can we have truth if over here the society promotes the idea of, you know, suing somebody and taking over every single one of their assets? Should they? stand up for what is right. And that is an American problem. You're 
you're really invested into this story. It was a story I never heard about. I don't know. Did you did you hear about it, Eric? No, I didn't. But it makes sense with the timeline of the fall of the tobacco companies. Mm-hmm. So coming out in the 90s. Yeah, that that Vanity Fair article. Um, I've yet to read it, but um, it looked like it was a pretty lengthy article. And it just, you know, um, yeah, like thankful for like Jeffrey Wigan to literally the whole movie. It's all about like, you know, Russell Crowe plays Jeffrey Wigan with like so, so much paranoia, so much paranoia because what happens, but he's right in his paranoia is because throughout the film, he is literally getting threatened um, in very, very subtle ways, but like not quite also like um, by, by this tobacco company, they're trying to shut him up from speaking his truth. So it's so much so as like, he's sleeping one night with his wife and his little uh his little daughter who um he has two daughters like one is asthmatic and the other one um she's like a a younger girl and uh the younger one she comes into the room one night and she's like daddy like who's that man outside like already you're like you're like panicking like what like where is this going and um so already in that way like there there is you never saw the person outside you know but Russell Crowe like uh, Wigan like he goes outside and he sees like a footprint and he's just like so he's right in his paranoia it's just like he did not see the guy and there's another scene where he's playing golf and it's very very late at night clearly like they're they're minutes away from closing up this golf place and he's just you know he's he's playing there and then he looks over like down down like the block or something like that and there's just a person staring at him also playing golf but like he's kind of like a shadowy figure it's just very menacing it's like it's this is like a a perfect thriller in that sense because you're just like okay these people are following him now and you know Russell Crowe is just like you know a wicked he's just like stop like stop following me you know and and he has like a, a bullet that he finds in his mailbox like these people want without killing him they're very much breaking apart this man's life and essentially, that's what you see in the film. And it's it's really sad because, I, I mean, this is based off a true story. So you can only imagine what Jeffrey Wigan actually went through. Um, but yeah, in the story, I mean, in the in the movie, like, uh, yeah, his wife leaves them eventually, you know, with the kids. Um, because the wife tells him at some point, like, I can't do this anymore with you. So, yeah, it was just, it's really sad to see that, to see that happen. Um, what someone has to go through to in order to tell the truth because it was with his it was within his conscious to do so i'll wrap it up saying that like i'm a sucker for these kind of like journalistic news movies like <laughs> i think of like a like a new uh, network zodiac and all the president's men like I, those are some of my favorite movies um, of all time but yeah we have some powerful actors here firing at their best um probably one of michael mann's most underrated dare i say like i don't really when I hear people talk about Michael Mann movies, I definitely always hear Heat. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear of like uh, Manhunter, um, you know, even Miami Vice. Um, but I don't really hear so much about The Insider, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, once again, I will say Russell Crowe's best performance. Uh, I'll, <laughs> sta- I'll stand by that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's a great adaptation of, of having an article and to turn it into a compelling and heartfelt story about a man who is just trying to tell the truth and everyone else who's literally trying to stop him from doing so. And where can you stream it? 
I did not stream this movie. I believe it is streaming, um, but I actually have a DVD copy of it. And I know that it's available on Blu-ray as well. You manipulated me into this. That's bullshit, Jeff. You greased the rails. I greased the rails for a guy who wanted to say yes. I helped him to say yes, that's all. You're not a robot, Jeff. Right? You got a mind of your own, don't you? Up to you, Jeffrey. That's the power you have, Jeffrey. Vital insider information the American public need to know. Lowell Bergman, the hotshot who never met a source he couldn't turn around. I fought for you, and I still fight for you. You fought for me? You manipulated me. Into where I am now. Staring at the Brown and Williamson building. It's all dark except the 10th floor. That's the legal department. That's where they fuck with my life. Jeffrey, where are you going with this? So, where are you going? You are important to a lot of people, Jeffrey. You think about that. You think about them. Guys like you are in short supply. Yeah, guys like you too. Where are you anyway? I'm on a leave of absence. Forced vacation. Will you try and have a good time? Yeah. Yeah, I will. So my last film here, um, I had to bring in this director because I think he was kind of pivotal for me when learning, kind of diving more deep into the world of art house films and kind of like a good cornerstone. And he introduced me with his book, Transcendental Cinema, uh, to a lot of directors that I still love today, such as Robert Brisson and Yasu Jiro Ozu. And this film was the second one that i saw of his officially the first one was taxi driver it's not really his he wrote the script though and still remains one of his most accomplished works today but this film this director considers his best work and that is mishima a life in four acts released in 1985 written and directed by paul schrader he was an intellectual who advocated action he was a rebel who fought for tradition. He was an artist who shocked the world. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas present a new film by Paul Schrader. Mishima. His writing shook the soul. His flamboyance captivated a generation. His vision challenged the conscience of his time. 
And on November 25, 1970, his life became the ultimate expression of his art. Mishima. So this is a biography film, the fictional recreation of the life of Yukio Mishima, the celebrated controversial Japanese writer through four different acts that each have parallels to his works, which were his novels. And Ken Ogata plays Yukio Mishima like a mirror. He embodies Mishima so much and to the point where I when I think of Mishima now, I think of Ken Ogata's character, like his person. Like mm-hmm. I cannot just, I cannot separate the two. Yeah. I, I think he plays him with so much integrity in this film that it is, you cannot separate the two now. Uh, one of those roles, you know, there's very few roles that I, I, like you feel like you see somebody in a movie and every time you think of that character, now that person's just attached to it. This is definitely one of those. Mm-hmm. Let's highlight some crew members here. Cinematography by John Bailey. Excellent. Oh. Yes. Yeah, okay. Excellent, excellent. But even more excellent, not wanting to compare the two, but I think this is by far phenomenal, is the music by the one and only Philip Glass. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know that. The score. Nice. It is. It almost steals the spotlight from the film with how great <laughs> oh, <wow>. the score <laughs> is. Yes, Philip Glass's Philip Glass. music just takes center stage in this film. And, you know, he's had other scores. I think the one that comes to mind is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I was actually thinking of Koyanasi Kwari. Oh, yes, exactly. And, you know, he has those chimes and it's all like a very, like his style of of scoring. I can't like, it's just so circular. Mm -hmm. It's, it it kind of like is like a wheel. Like it just like keeps rotating and like the, you're hearing the same patterns, but like it just grows and grows and grows and grows until it hits its peak. And every time it's just so mm. brilliant. And in this film, that peak. So the first shot you see, you're overlooking this, this hill in front of the ocean and there's this red rising sun. And the credits are playing over it, introducing the cast and the crew. But then you see that title, right? Mishima just sprawl out the title mm. of the film. And then that it hits the peak of Philip Glass's score. Oh, wow. And it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, I can't. I, I gosh, you know you're in for a ride with like, a good film when that hits, like <laughs> when the beat drops. <laughs> when the beat drops. When the title drops. <laughs> yeah. So just some quick background about who Mishima was. So Mishima wrote approximately 40 novels, 18 plays, and 20 volumes of short stories in his life, and he was an oddball, flamboyant persona who wrote a lot about death and suicide. Think. A parallel to Norman Mailer. I don't like the Jap- Jap- Japanese culture is uh, represented only by the flower arrangement of such a sort of peace loving culture. Uh, we still have, I think, we still have a very uh, strong warrior's mind in us. <laughs> I particularly liked Kendall from the sense of beauty. But uh, gradually, uh, I found out the traditional value of the candle, and uh, it used to be close to the duel, uh, death fighting, and 
old kind of player uh, wanted to get real experience of the border of death and life, you know. And in the samurai tradition, the, the sense of beauty was always connected with death. And uh, for instance, if you commit harakiri, uh, the samurai was requested to make up his face by powder or lipsticks uh, in order to keep his face beautiful after after his such a suffering death. Mishima was into bodybuilding, and he often posed nude for photos. And there's this particular one where he poses nude, at, dressed as Saint Sebastian. And Saint Sebastian. Yeah, Saint Sebastian. Saint Sebastian was, I don't know the full background, but he was nailed to a cross and then struck with arrows. Okay. And there's this gotcha. there's this really familiar picture of him on the cross, um, with arrows in him, and he's got a little loincloth. On. <laughs> So Mishima, and Mishima did the same thing. Mishima did the same thing. And okay. it's one of the themes of the films because Mishima was known to be kind of a closeted homosexual. Mm-hmm. And it was through these types of, you know, artistic expressions that he would let that side out. And in the film particularly, that St. Sebastian image was something that he actually sexually was attracted to. Mm-hmm. Schrader and his brother, were not a, who co-wrote the film with him, were not allowed to discuss any sense, any aspect of homosexuality yeah. due to an agreement for the licenses by Mishima's wife. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Um, Problematic much? <laughs> yes. She didn't yeah. want, Mishima's widow did not want anything about homosexuality to come out in the mm. film and so that little scene with saint sebastian is the only t- is the only sort of you know wink at it that we get but it's a very obvious one and you see that in his novels too that that theme of homosexuality is constantly examined but schrader does it so you know subtextually that it's just you know it's kind of like if you're not paying attention it'll go it'll go past you but yeah um i have seen before um especially like on reddit when people are like oh like what queer cinema do you recommend and i have seen um people recommend mishima i never understood why but i obviously i didn't know the, the backstory um okay but now i see the connection and yeah, yeah oh yeah people, uh, people recognize people, it. yeah people recognize it as like um like a queer as queer cinema so interesting Mm-hmm. Yeah, he um it's I wonder what Schrader would have done if he had full creative control over that. So, but who knows? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Mishima's sole purpose in life in his older years was to return Japan to its samurai tradition and emperor worship because he wanted to wipe clean any western influence on Japan. And at the age of 45 on no- in November of 1970, Mishima and his private right-wing army go into the Japanese military general's office and take him hostage in order to make a final orchestrated art speech in front of the Japanese army on why they should return to the imperialized closed border nationality perspective that Japan had in the past. Okay. And after this, it was kind of a massive failure, as you'll see in the film. But 
after this, Mishima commits suicide in front of his four, the top four members of his private wing army. Oh, wow. And it was botched. So he was supposed what? to have his head cut off, but it failed. And so Mishima had this really grisly final moment of not dying immediately. Mm-hmm. And he commits seppuku, which is the form of mm-hmm. suicide in which they cut open their stomach. Yeah. But he didn't die right away. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really grisly final moments of his life where it's just, he tried to make it this orchestrated act, you know, death as a form of art. Mm-hmm. And it failed to the oh. very end. And it's very, very, ugh. Yeah. graphic scene well believe yeah. it or not schrader schrader doesn't really he doesn't give it failure what he does is he portrays it to what was mishima's you know original idea which was death as art so he does mm-hmm. show that mishima is successful in it mm-hmm. but the way that it's handled is wonderful so given mishima's beliefs this film kind of seems to create a bit of an original sin if you think about it because this is a film that was made by a westerner creating the image of an anti-Western Japanese novelist. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so, I find that. <laughs> I find that interesting. Yes, yeah. and uh, sorry, listeners, before this, before we, sh- we recorded today, actually, Marissa brought up a good point about appropriation. And this is a film that's still in, you know, a bit of contention about whether or not it falls under that. And the question that I had was, you know, as watching this film is, are the Schraders, Paul and his brother, are they outsiders in this world or are they actually connecting and so something to keep in mind here i think i have an answer for this and actually schrader has an answer for this at the very end but um something to keep in mind as hearing about the film so to go into the film you see immediately coppola and lucas present so (laughs) there was they gave the monies they gave the monies yep (laughs) there was uh you know hollywood royalty was interested in this so Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned that first shot of the ocean horizon and you see that you go into a black screen with white text that shows you that the film is divided into four different chapters so they are labeled beauty and it correlates to Mishima's novel Temple of the Golden Pavilion art which correlates to Kiyoko's house action runaway horses and then at the very end you have what's called the harmony of the pen and sword so this sets you, this kind of gives you an expectation of, of something, you know, of a connection between the literature of Mishima and his life is what Schrader's kind of trying to go for here. And it works in three plot lines. So introduced in chapter one, which is beauty, you see all three different plot lines. And you have plot line A, which is the current day filmed in a sort of you know, cinema verite style of Mishima's coup attempt the day of. And it literally starts at the morning when he wakes up. And so that intertwines with plot B, which goes back to Mishima's childhood, which is shot in this black and white style. So clear differences. You have different lighting, different color based off of which section of of the timeline that you're looking at. And then you have this third one, which is a theatrical realization of Mishima's novels that speak and amplify a certain theme given in the chapter that you're watching. So you have a trifecta of plot lines intertwined with each other. And I can only imagine that reading the script must have been hella confusing because- (laughs) It is to me. (laughs) Yes, because it it seems like it's kind of all over the place. But what I really like is that each plot line is working towards something. 
they're moving forward. It's mm-hmm. never back, forward, back, forward. It's always each of them is moving forward, not only in time, but also, you know, in the narrative. Yeah. It's an impressive script. Traders know, you know, sh- shabby writer. He's no, no, <laughs> he's, definitely not. <laughs> as, probably more known for his writing than his directing, but I would say so too. That's a, that's a fair, uh, that's a fair judgment. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, this script is, is brilliantly well done and set designs. Oh my gosh. I have to oh, highlight. Yeah, I've seen pictures. Yeah. They look amazing. <laughs> I have to highlight Eiko Ishioka and Kyoji Sasaki, the production designer and art direct art director. Cause good Lord. You will not see a more exquisite, colorful, beautiful, gorgeous theatrical set anywhere. Like this is just picture perfect. And the Golden Pavilion in chapter one is jaw dropping. It is clearly a set. And what I really like about the recreation of the novels is that you can tell that they are existing in like a studio. You can tell that they are thematic recreation. It's very theatrical, like you're watching a play. And that makes total sense because it has nothing to do with the plot lines of Mishima's life, but they enrich it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about like adaptations, like Schrader's going full creative here. Like he, he has, he has, he knows how they connect to Mishima's life. And this film would have sorely missed those sections of the theatrical uh, novel recreation mm-hmm. something of such a highlight for this film and Schrader specifically talked about wanting to show the masks of Mishima so he believed Mishima wore different masks in different situations and Mishima even says so in the film and so in chapter one you have sort of the mask of masculinity and you know sort of his feeling like he is insignificant and weak compared to other other people in chapter two you have homosexuality that really comes to shine and this is where he really embraces the idea of being sort of audacious and being what he says not only the seer as a writer but also the scene and in plot line b which focuses on his life and his early years you really start to see that speak to that and the finale is where we have all three plot lines as well as every single novel recreation coalesce into this final final moment when Mishima's suicide seppuku is happening in the general's office and it's this really built up moment and instead of showing Mishima dying what Schrader does is he cuts to runaway horses and the recreation in which the character commits seppuku in that story Mm. and it's in front of that rising sun and it shows all three of the main characters from those novels at their final like in a final moment in that film and then it all just weaves together and Mishima dies and as he says the rising sun will swallow everything and it does and to, to conclude my thoughts here, I think this was inciting, excitingly ambitious with four incredible sections of a narrative that really embody Mishima and his work. Schrader's creative risks bring not only integrity to this controversial person, but it also was buoyed by the art correction and one-of-a-kind sets and is a seminal work of Schrader. I will say that I wanted to see a little more of 
Mishima's personal life because he had a wife and he had kids footnotes to the story really mm, so okay yeah one wonders what a focus on them might have added but to answer my previous question about you know are Schrader's are the Schrader's outsiders here Schrader says I'd never have dared to make a film about any other Japanese writer but Mishima was so slavishly obsessed with being approved of by the West and shared so many ideological conflicts with the West that he was really an international author. A lot of confusion in Mishima's own life was a confusion of style. He'd have photos taken of himself wearing a formal black kimono in a Versailles-like room, Hawaiian shirts in tatami rooms. So in that sense, the contradiction between an American style, American rhythms in the film and the Japanese settings fit very well with Mishima's own contradictions. And where can you find film is it streaming um is there like a copy of it so i watch this on the criterion channel streaming service Mm -hmm. um however i think you can get this rented through amazon and you can also buy the dvd um yeah the the blu-ray dvd from criterion i will actually probably be getting this dvd from the criterion i am I don't know if you've seen that cover, but it's really beautiful. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's like gold. It's like gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's on the Criterion channel. Yes. So, okay. Okay. Yes. No, I, I might I might check it out at some point. Yes. Do check yeah. it out. And um, I don't know if I consider a Schrader's best work, in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. He surely does. But judge for yourself and see what you find. So to recap our episode, I discussed the films Interstellar 5555, The Story of the Secret Star System, Smooth Talk, and Mishima, A Life in Four Acts. And I discuss In the Bedroom, Bright Star, and The Insider. So within these films, one of the ideas that I take away is this idea of globalization and what that means for filmmaking and how two of my films, Mishima and Interstellar, Uh, We're in collaboration with Japan from two different countries. And so it makes me wonder, would these films have been made without our modern ability to communicate across the world? This is definitely a product of the late 20th, early 21st century. And an example of the positive progressions of globalization on the world, you know, you, you have a bevy of problems that, you know, we're dealing with today. But one thing that you can say is that the definition of progress in art can be redefined my takeaway is that definitely adaptations especially we're talking about unique adaptations for our episode is that some of these directors have taken certain creative risks here you know creative liberties and I think that they were very successful like take a bright star for instance from you know Jane Campion's bright star she literally took 
the, the like she was inspired by the biography and then she was also inspired by John Keats's poems and she made it into a beautiful uh, love story and then to take uh, in the bedroom Todd Fields in the bedroom from a short story and he just made it yeah he took creative risk with that as well when we think of adaptations don't think so much about is it so faithful? You know, it's fidelity. Don't think about it in that term. Think about it in the terms of like, okay, yes, there are direct sources. You know, when we talk about franchises, you know, those are going to be pretty, pretty direct uh, in that case. But the films that we highlighted today, I think do a pretty good job about how some of these directors have taken wildly creative choices. And they made, literally, they made works of art. I consider In the Bedroom a masterpiece. Um, Bright Star is a beautiful love story. And The Insider, I mean, Michael Mann, he made a very tension-packed thriller um, from this Vanity Fair article. Um, so yeah, I think to, like our takeaway, I guess, from this episode is maybe check out some films that, and, and don't really compare them to like the adaptation, you know, watch them for what they are and respect it for what it is, is that it's, it's a standalone piece. And as somebody who does like to, you know, create films and, and work um, on ideas for films, like I share with my fellow creators, you know, don't be afraid to be inspired by something that's unconventional and don't be afraid to try and tell a story in an unconventional way, such as with Mishima, you know, having those four chapters and three plot lines. Like I said, the script was probably hella confusing, but on screen, you get it. And to be fearless in that way with your inspiration is something that, you know, Mishima taught me, Interstellar as well. And Smooth Talk even, to be audacious with your with your choices and, and don't be so tied down in fidelity. So all these things considered, there are many ways to be inspired for a film beyond just the books. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find us on social media. Our handle is at filmchatterpod. We will leave our links also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. See ya.